Welcome to the Eastern Current Saltwater Fishing Podcast presented by Outdoors by Owner. OBO helps the outdoorsmen find the perfect home to rent for their next outdoor pursuit. Whether you're looking for a house right on the shallow water flats of Florida Bay with world-class sight fishing right out your back door, or you want to find a weekend mountain getaway for you and your family, OBO has the house for you. To check out all their incredible properties, visit go-obo.com. On today's podcast, I chat with good friend and fellow guide, Captain Rick Croson. If you ever wanted to catch pelagic fish on light tackle, popping and jigging, Rick is your guy. Rick spends countless days every year in the blue water, putting his clients on fish of a lifetime, and he's here today to share with us how to catch these fish on topwater, on jigs, and even on the fly. You do not want to miss this episode. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Eastern Current on Patreon. There you'll be able to find our weekly Ramp Talk podcast, as well as other great video content that you can't find on YouTube. If I'm fishing a jig, you can bet it's going to be an iStrike Texas Eye. Dave and Ralph at iStrike have built the most versatile and durable lineup of jigs in the saltwater industry. Whether you need a finesse presentation on spooky wintertime redfish, or you need to hop a big swim bait on deep water structure for cobia and bull redfish, iStrike has the jig for you. Be sure to check out their website and use code EC10 for up to 40% off all iStrike products and 10% off all Z-Man products. The code can only be used at iStrikeFishing.com, and you can find the code and the link to their website in the podcast show notes. There is no stealthier platform to fish the shallow water flats, creeks, and marshes than a pedal drive kayak. The P127 from Bonafide is my choice when I want to get out on a solo trip and access the areas that I can't get to on a flat skiff or a bay boat. It happens far too often in a boat where I have redfish and plenty of water in the back of a creek or bay, but there's a sandbar or series of sandbars between me and the fish and I just can't quite make it to casting distance. But with a kayak, I can drag across the sandbar right to them. Be sure to check out the full lineup of Bonafide Kayaks on the website or at Hook, Line, and Paddle here in Wilmington. I will have a link to the Bonafide website in the show notes as well. Rick, what's going on, man? Thanks for jumping on the podcast with me. Excited to chat today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a real treat for me. Oh, for me as well. So, guys, uh, Rick, I've known of Rick probably much longer than he's known of me, and uh one day I was at church and realized that he goes to my church and I was like, Oh man, me and Rick are one day we're going to be friends. And it's finally happened. Now we're buddies. And, and, uh, we just finished up a little Bible study together at church, but, uh, talked to him at church and talked to him over the phone and, and, and nailed down a date to hop on and do this podcast. So excited to chat with him about his world of, of light tackle fishing, popping and jigging here in Wilmington. So, um, again, man, thank you so much for hopping on excited to kind of pick your brain. Yeah, that's thanks again. It's, we 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 live in such a great, uh, uh, just spot on the map that um, you, that you and me can fish such different uh, species in such different ways and still be literally going out the same inlet, which is just amazing. Right, for sure. It's very diverse. It's and it's so easy sometimes to look, to, you know, to think, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. I wish I lived. Uh, you know, somewhere else. And, and, and maybe like, maybe Australia would be better in you know, the West coast of right. Australia. But outside of that, yeah. I don't think, <laughs> I, I mean, it's so, we've got so much here, so much to be thankful for. So, uh, but man, yeah, let's, let's, mm-hmm. oh, sorry. Yeah. The seasons definitely, definitely. Um, but let's start out, tell everyone, you know, your story, uh, how you got into fishing and how it's brought you to where you are now. 
so I got really lucky and was born into a family that had, uh, you know, that fished and hunted. And so, you know, from a very young age, I was, you know, fishing in the streams and creeks and ponds and, um, and, uh, <clears throat> I got lucky, uh, in the fact that, um, my grandparents, uh, from North Carolina, uh, had retired early and moved to the Outer Banks. And I got to spend a ton of time there when I was a kid and, um, got even luckier when I, when I left, uh, or when I graduated high school, I went and lived with my grandparents on the Outer Banks. Um, and that kind of started my, my journey into, uh, saltwater specific, um, uh, on the Outer Banks, we have, you know, the sound and the ocean, uh, we have an amazing inlet, um, at Oregon Inlet. And so this, my whole, my whole life had been, you know, a mix of normal, normal freshwater stuff. And then when you start mixing in the saltwater stuff, you're like, wow, it's basically the same. It's just a whole lot bigger. Right. And so, you know, my, my, my eyes just kept getting wider and wider and my while it got smaller and smaller as I went deeper and deeper. So <laughs> unfortunately um, I live in the Gulf stream now. Um, and so I, through college, I moved to Wilmington in 98 and finished college here and met my wife. And um, uh, when, after we were married, she didn't, she didn't want to move to the Outer Banks and I didn't want to move inland. So we were already here. So this is where we live and um, we're glad to, glad to be here because it's an amazing place. Um, but I started, so I was working in a tackle shop during the college years and started my business in 2006 on my own, but I had been running boats, uh, at Oregon Inlet when I was young, uh, mating and, and then got my captain's license 18. And, um, <clears throat> this has been, um, it's been a progression to, I never really found anything else that I really wanted to do more than fish. Um, and specifically take people fishing to experience what I was, you know, so enthralled with. Um, so that, that's kind of how it started. And I started with smaller boats, a 20 footer and then a 27 footer and then a 30 footer. And now I'm in a 37 foot catamaran with four engines and, uh, it, you know, it costs four times what my house costs. So <laughs> it has to work or it has to leave. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Now the bigger boat, can you go too big? Do you feel like for, for what you're doing, can it be too big for your style of fishing or is it all about just, you know, getting out there as many days as possible with the weather windows for a big boat? So it's, it's, it's a great question. So the, the answer really is, it, you really can't get too big, but you can, you can lose the ability to do multiple things. Gotcha. So I, I, you know, I used to run a, a big uh, diesel boat uh, on the Outer Banks and, and you kind of have to be in a, in a Carolina boat up there to fish enough days to make a living. Um, you know, the weather's just, there's no shoals on either side of you. So right. out there you're, you know, it's rough. Um, here, because we have shoals and because we can, um, we can kind of skirt the wind directions. Really, a center console is like the ultimate platform. Um, it, it's kind of like a it's it's like the best of a hybrid bay boat and a flats boat and a flat bottom boat all rolled into one. Um, I can put the riggers out and troll. Um, we can turn the motors to the side and we can drift uh, with everybody on one side. I can um, you know live chum. I can. Um, anchor up and, and set a chum slick and, you know, let us fish that way. Um, but the 360 degree fishability of the boat is kind of the key to, to being able to pop and jig and troll and bottom fish and, you know, fly fish and, you know, all at the same time, like literally like seamlessly throughout the day, we may go literally from 
trolling to jigging to popping back to trolling. Yeah. Now tell me this, cause you are the first guy to, to pop and jig here, you know, in, in the North Carolina area. And, and when did that realization happen? Cause I'm sure it wasn't when you were first, you know, mating and whatnot that, that maybe you started doing it, but when did you kind of realize like, wait, we can do this here and it's actually really productive and worthwhile. So it's funny. I tell this story all the time at, at fishing schools and seminars and stuff. I, I, you can't be any more blessed than I am. Like this is, this is, this is the story of being like blessed and not knowing it <laughs> until, you know, for a while. Okay. So in 2008, I got an email, um, from, uh, a Japanese, um, fishing group. I'm going to call it group. It okay. wound up being, it wound up being a, a tackle company in Japan, um, that, that made all kinds of high end jigging and popping stuff. And, um, they happened to be, I was trying to get my, you know, my business going. Um, and one of the things we have here are amberjacks. We have lots and lots of amberjacks. Right. And most lots people and lots. here, <laughs> lots and lots. Right. And, and most people here do not, you know, prefer to catch them. That's not their target. You know, one or two, you know, one on a popper, one on a fly, you know, whatever. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're fishing generally, you don't want to really target them. Um, so anyway, I got this email and, uh, it was all about, you know, hey, can we catch amberjacks like, um, you know, every day or on a normal, normal basis? Like if we came to fish from, when, when should we come and how big are they and blah, blah, blah. And so um, I sent them an email back saying, you know, jokingly, hey, we have amberjacks 24-7, 365. Um, you know, how big do you want them? We, you know, just joking. Yeah, the yeah. guy's like, right? <clears throat> the guy's like, we want 100 pound ones. I was like, okay. <laughs> well, Okay. So yeah, I've caught a bunch of big ones before, you know, never really trying to, but we, everybody's had that, you know, monster amberjack story, right? Right. So anyway, um, so through emails, I booked this charter and they came for seven days. It was four of them and a little film crew and um, they spoke zero English. They, they came and everything was through emails initially. When I picked them up at the airport, it was hand signals and... I mean, it was the base, like, human experience to, to communicate without actually being able to communicate. Yeah. So we ride offshore the first day, and I, I took them to the break because they wanted the jig, and I knew they wanted big fish. I thought, this is the best, you know, the best opportunity for me is to take them to the edge of the Gulf Stream and let them jig in, you know, 225 to 400-foot of water. And so we get out there, and um, first day, <clears throat> this, also – I was in a much smaller boat and I had, had like beautiful weather for a whole week. So I got like a real oh, firsthand experience. It was, a, it was, it was kind of nuts. That's awesome. So I would show up, I would show up. So I, I trailered my boat at the time every day. I actually showed up to the boat ramp every day with nothing but the boat, some ice in the cooler and waters. And that's it. Like, they it brought everything. Surreal. They brought everything. Rods, reels, tackle. I mean, literally I, I did not have a piece of tackle on the boat. That's um, nice. Especially so when you know you're going to lose some to, to amberjacks. Well, it, yeah, at the time I had no idea what they were actually doing. Like, I, I mean, I, I knew about jigging. I mean, we knew about, you know, like bottom jigging a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't, I didn't really know about jigging. Gotcha, gotcha, um, gotcha. I mean, these, these guys brought rods and reels that were worth, you know, three or $4,000 a piece. Yeah. I mean, insanity. So anyway, we're out offshore and, um, I had enough conversation going with one guy that, you know, basically come to find out 
these guys travel the world fishing for different species wherever the biggest of that species is. So, for instance, they want to go catch um, giant wahoos, they go to Fiji. Um, they want to go catch giant bluefin tunas, they go to um, Prince Edward Island. Um, you know, they want to go catch giant yellowfins, they go to um, Puerto Vallarta. Um, I mean, these they're, they're very specific on yeah. how they travel and how they fish which is new to me. I, I had never experienced it. Um, anyway, we're, we're fishing along and we're catching jacks and we're catching jacks at a rate, which you would think would be exhausting. And these dudes would literally catch a 40, 50, 60 pound jack, bring it to the top. I'd grab it, <clears throat> take their picture. I'd throw the fish in the water and their jig would beat the fish down as they were dropping oh the next gosh. time. I'm telling you, it was shape. that bad. Yes, and they're all Japanese, like official Japanese. So I mean, these dudes were like five foot one at best, <laughs> yeah, and as big around as my thumb. Um, I mean, they had all kinds of. This tackle was amazing. Like I was just like I was in awe playing with their stuff, like just touching it and looking at it. Yeah. But but here's the here's the crazy thing. So we're catching jacks. They're having a good time. We're getting some big bites now. We're starting to catch some fish in the eighties and nineties, and um this dude sets the hook and you can see the tail vibration through the rod tip that it's obviously a tuna fish. And, um, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm like looking at it and I notice it's doing something different. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, he looks over at me and he goes, Oh, captain. Oh, 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 tuna. And I was like, awesome. So I got the gap and I'm like all excited. And he's like, no, no, what Jack? And I was like, wow. The dude's upset that he has a tuna fish on. <laughs> so, like, straight up, like, how do you make that up? So the fish comes up, and I got this 60-pound yellowfin, and I'm, like, trying to high-five him, and he's like, hook, you know, hook, take the hook out. And I'm like, okay. So nobody even looked over. Like, nobody was like, we're like whatever. So I boxed the fish, and they went back to jigging. And about an hour later, a dude hooks up, and the line comes straight to the top, and the line starts smoking off to the side, and it comes around in a circle. And instantly, my mind went straight to Wahoo. I'm like, okay, that's a Wahoo for sure. And sure enough, uh, fish does a bunch of circles. The guy's running around the boat, and I gaffed this. It was like a 78 or 79-pound Wahoo. I mean, a big one, you yeah. know, a big model. Yeah. And um, stick it, jerk it in the boat, and I'm like, you know, I'll, yeah, I, I don't care how long you fish, a 70-pound Wahoo is awesome. Yeah. It, it, yeah, no, no, no emotion at all. Just get the hook back. Let me he check my leaders. You know, I, yeah, I think I, I think he had to retie his leaders. and was all mad at the fish because he, he was. <laughs> <laughs> so, by the end of the day, we had caught gag groupers, red groupers, scamp groupers, uh, pinkies. I, I forget the species. Uh, yellow fins, black fins, wahoo. Um, I, I, I think we might have caught a, a mahi later on that day. Um, and this is all day one, but they caught a bunch of jacks. So they were happy doing the jack thing. And they were later that night, I took them to dinner and we were talking and they were like, you know, we really want to just focus on the jacks. And I'm like, well, I didn't even know that you could jig for the other things. So I, I don't know how to tell you not to catch an elephant right. while you're catching the amber jacks. Right. So, um, so this is how this whole game started for me. It was kind of this surreal, like, these people brought this stuff. It, it was like an alien race bringing stuff to you and giving you a gift. And it's like, here, watch this is fire. And you're like, whoa. Um, yeah, that's crazy. It, I mean, if you can imagine it. So that's, that's, how my, that's how this started. 
I will say I, I, um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I like the, I don't have any hobbies. So I love fishing. I love every aspect of fishing. I love, you know, the, the fooling of the fish, the, um, you know, the different targets we have, the different seasons we have. I just, I, I'm all ate up with it. Um, so by, by like the third or fourth day, I was using them to figure out what else this stuff would do. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I hate to admit that. And they, I didn't admit that to them, but so on day, I think it was day three, I was like, we're riding offshore in the morning. And it was super glassy again. And I'm like, Hey guys, how deep can you fish these jigs? And they're like in Japan, they fish, they were talking three, four, uh, hundred meters. I was like, that's 1200 feet. Golly. I'm like, I'm like okay. So I said, let's go see if there's any jacks out here in this really deep spot. And this is back before they closed all the MPA stuff for the Snowy Grouper uh, uh-huh. wreck. So I rode them out offshore, 980 foot to the Snowy Grouper wreck, knowing that there's not any jacks there. I just kind of wanted to see if a, if a grouper would eat a jig, you know, a, a, a snowy. And uh, three dudes job, dropped, and all three dudes hooked up within the first or second bounce. And all three dudes caught a 50 pound, um, uh, uh, these were, um, snowy groupers. And I was like, okay. I said, no, I don't think there's jacks here. And I ran them back in there to catch jacks the rest of the day. But I was like, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is, this can of worms that I've opened is way past my imagination now. Everything. Um, everything. It, it's it, literally, I have, I have caught everything in the state of North Carolina except for a blue marlin on a jig. Um, wow. And, and I think that that is just obviously because I haven't been in a place where there was a blue marlin to eat my jig um, because I think they would probably eat it too. It's, it, it covers from the bottom to the surface. Um, what I like to tell people is it's, it's like a rifle in your quiver of, of arsenal. You're in your, in your weapons. Yeah. That's you look cool at it, it, right? So trolling is like a shotgun. Um, you can mix and match and change stuff at will and you're covering a big swath of water and you can put stuff down deep and keep stuff on the top. Yeah. Spray a um, lot and something's going to stick if you will. Exactly. And, and so you can kind of figure out what they want, how they want it. Well, jigging is literally like putting a rifle scope exactly on the fish. So when you mark fish or find fish now with all the technology in this metered line and and the way the jigs sink and the way the vertical presentation is, it's a, it's literally like, okay, I have found them now and now I'm going to target them specifically. And I had to re like reverse engineer how to not catch jacks because it's so effective for jacks. Right. Um, so there's all kinds of tricks. Like you can, especially tuna fishing, you can, you know, I like to stay 25 feet above the, the tuna mark, if you will. Um, so if I'm marking them in 125 foot, um, I make my guys stop at a hundred foot and start their, their motion upwards from there. Um, that eliminates some of the jacks. Um, you're never going to stop it completely, but, um, you know, that, and, and then like fishing these little mud slopes offshore in the deep, um, we're fishing specific little areas. So I'm making real short, like hundred feet, 150 foot, dr- uh, drifts and we're bouncing the bottom and then pulling them up. And, and so we're never near the jack schools. Um, um, relevant to right now, the Atlantic Bonitas are showing up pretty good. Um, if I can find a school of Atlantic Bonitas, especially in a crowd, and I can stay on top of them, um, instead of going to the bottom and catching pinfish and bluefish, 
I can I can use my real small metered line, 15, 20 pound test, and I can keep a jig above all that other trash and just catch Atlantic Bonitas in the middle of like, you know, a 30 or 40 boat armada, you know, the John Boat Armada right. uh, at the Liberty Ship, for instance. Yeah, for so, sure. I've teamed up with Florida Fishing Products to outfit my guide service with their spinning reels, braided line, and fluorocarbon leader, and I'm looking forward to giving you some real-world feedback on their gear. I've been enjoying their Osprey CE for all my light tackle, redfish, and speckled trout, and Resolute for my beefier setups for Big Reds, Cobia, Tarpon, and Jacks. I'm looking forward to helping further their mission to equip anglers to fish better, which couldn't align closer with our values here at Eastern Current. Be sure to check out their website, floridafishingproducts.com, or ask about them at your local tackle shop. Temple Fork Outfitters is the rod of choice for all of us here at Eastern Current. Whether we're fly fishing for shallow water redfish, sight casting to cobia from a tower, or dropping live pinfish to grouper in 100 feet of water, they have the rod for the job. Their customer service is unmatched by any rod company out there, and their rods can take the beating of everyday guide use without any issues. My favorite rod for redfish and speckled trout is their 7-foot medium-light tactical inshore spin rod. Be sure to check out their website, tforods.com. For sure. Now, now tell me this, how important have electronics, did you immediately realize that it was an electronics game, you know, when you, with the guys that you initially started jigging with, or was that something where you, over time, you're like, wow, the electronics, because I, I, just talking, I'm already realizing, like, okay, he's using electronics a bunch. So what, how does that play into yeah. to the game? Yeah. So what, what happened is, um, so I did this Japanese base, this Japanese jigging thing. It, it it caught fire right away after this group went back and told everybody. So I out of so from 2008 to 2012, I basically ran three quarters of my trips were Japanese tourists that came for seven days at a time just to jig. Wow. Um. Yeah. And and what that allowed me to do was basically go find Amberjacks, and then like you're saying about the electronics, I got to study what everything looked like while I was going slow drifting across them. Yeah. Um, and so I have all these pictures that I do in seminars. Um, and it's amazing how small the difference is between a tuna mark and a jack mark versus like an African pompano mark versus like, a, um, you know, uh, we have a mix of, um, Amberjacks, greater amberjacks, and then lesser amberjacks, and um, other little little jack species, and they all mark a little different. Um, and and so I got to do that. I got to I got to um, kind of keep my head focused on okay, that's a blackfin, that's a yellowfin, that's a blah blah blah. And 
and I and so I over over all those years, I basically got it down to where I can go and troll over a spot, circle all the structure, and go, okay, here's where I need to set up for this particular fish, so that I'm not attracting a bunch of stuff that I don't want to it. God, that is so um, cool. <laughs> so yeah, the electronics are critical. And it's not so much that I have something special set up. It's just, right. I'm telling you, the differences are so minute. Um, and it's just countless hours. Enough. It's the countless hours that you've been able to to look at it, drop a jig, you know, and 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 be able to fact check it over and over and over again. Yeah, well, and it's funny too. So again, I don't have any hobbies. So, <laughs> so um, I remember a couple of years in, I was like, you know what, I want to see what this stuff looks like. So I, I got a GoPro camera for Christmas, you know, when they first came out yeah. and um, said, you know what? I think what I can do is while these guys are jigging and I start marking, I'm going to take a GoPro camera down uh, and drop it down, put a weight at the bottom, drop it down. And I, I'm using metered line on a jigging rod. And when I get to the exact place the tunas are, I'm going to clip a poly ball to it, to the line. And I'm just going to let it go. And I'm going to let the boat drift away like normal and let that poly ball stay with the school. And so I did, I kept doing these experiments where I would, where I would drop it and watch them. And it's so crazy to watch different animals, just the way they are uh, just reacting in, in, in life. Like, so tunas, black fins, um, yellow fins don't do it exactly like this, but black fins will be in a ball, okay, in a circle. And um, what you kind of think of as a normal, you know, kind of a three-dimensional circle um, school but every fish sticks his head straight up and then goes up maybe two or three foot and then turns and puts his head straight down and goes down two or three foot. And they keep going up and down in their own little wake. And the, the whole school's doing it in, at the same time. Wow. Um, and that's why they mark just so subtly different than the jacks that are underneath of them because jacks are just basically sitting in the current holding their position. Um, gotcha. and, and, and tuna fish, are, I mean, uh, black fins will do one thing. Albacores will mix with them. False albacores will. Yellow fins will actually get in a school, and the whole school, instead of them all independently going up and down together, you know, on on their own, yellow fins will go up and down together in a uniform. It's beautiful underwater. Wow. And and so they, it's but the subtle difference in that mark is like, okay, that's a yellow fin and that's a black fin. And so many times, I mean, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time now. So many people are like, there's no way you can tell. Like, we pull up to a spot, and I'm like, there's the African pomponets, for instance. This is the thing I did last. I'm like, there's the Africans. Those are barracudas, you know, and, and they're like, there's absolutely no way you know that. And <laughs> we start fishing, and we start catching them, and I'm like, and they're like, how how in the world could you possibly? Uh, just It's literally time. Like I say, it's just time. I for have, sure millions of hours of watching those screens. I need a hobby. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you've got a hobby and it's fishing. It's a, it's a career (laughs) and a hobby, but that's so cool. Cause not only can, you know, I was saying you're fact checking with a jig, like, Oh, that's, I think that's black fin tuna and you drop down, you catch black fin tuna, but now you can really 100% know and and look at the marks. And I bet you were even able to mark your camera and whatnot. So seeing your camera, you know, near the schools of fish and, and understanding what you're looking at, that is just too cool. And, and well, I, it taught me a bunch of other things too. Stuff like unanticipated things that I learned. I have never dropped a GoPro camera in a school of tuna and not seen black fins, uh, albacores, or yellow fins, and not seen a wahoo on camera. Really? They're always Period. out there hanging around them. There's always at least a couple swimming around the per- periphery of them. 
every single, I have, I probably have four or 500 um, videos of this over the years. And every single time, it may only be one frame of them, but every single time there's at least one Wahoo in the video. And that just tells me that life kind of begets life offshore. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, people, I hear people on the radio tell me all the time, you know, you know, when I hear them talking, they're like, Oh, you know, I'm marking all this stuff, but I'm just not getting bit. And they're like, what they're doing is they're trolling through it. They're not getting bit. They assume it's not what they want. And they keep on going instead of crossing over a mark, not really knowing what the mark is and, and kind of working it and circling it and kind of giving it some time before they go to the next one. They're just literally going from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And, um, that's one of the tricks that I, you know, I try to teach people is, you know, life begets life. If you find amberjacks, there's probably other stuff there. There's a reason those amberjacks are living at that exact spot at that exact moment. Um, and I'm sure that's the same for inshore. You know what I mean? It, you, certain places are alive and hold life. And then when they fade out or it's not their season, um, you know, everything changes. But it's just, it's really neat um, to see the interaction between um, all these things that we don't necessarily want to catch all the time to the things that we do want to catch all the time and kind of correlating them together, you know? Yeah, definitely. So I will agree with you. I've uh, not nearly as cool as the GoPro on the polyball, but uh, on schools of redfish in the winter, I-, I knew that these fish, like this was maybe two years ago, I, there was a, a big school of redfish. It was probably, you know, 500, 800 redfish in this one area. Mm-hmm. And at high tide, they were getting up on this flooded grass edges. And at low tide, they were falling into this pretty darn small slough. And so I went in there at like a mid tide when I knew they were about to fall out from their high tide area to their low tide area. And I took a GoPro on a little tiny tripod and just stuck it in the middle of, uh, of where those fish were hanging out and just hit record. I knew I could get about 35 minutes of recording. And so I, I watched those fish, you know, a few minutes after swim down in there and just let it record for a while. I had a little float on the top of it so I could go over there and like grab the float and pull the GoPro back out and, uh, oh. and let it film. And I thought it was all mm-hmm. redfish. And when I, when I went back, Obviously, mullet will swim with redfish a good bit. But when I went back mm-hmm. and looked through the footage, it was mullet, black drum, speckled trout, um, and redfish all together in that school. Predominantly redfish, all but but all together. And, and also, what I've noticed too over the winters, uh, you know, when when life does kind of congregate more inshore as well as offshore, is that's where all the bait is. And also, early in the mornings, if if I'm running into a spot, there's there's always a lot more bird activity near where the redfish schools are because those redfish right. are drawn there for for a specific reason, but also because of the bait and and definitely like diver ducks. I'll see mergansers and other diver ducks like all around the areas where these schools are. So it's like all that life's congregated, kind of the same way in a smaller scale of what you're you know seeing offshore, which is yeah, just, exactly just really cool. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, no, that's super cool. The video in inshore has got to be just amazing to watch all those different fish swim so close together in the winter when they wouldn't necessarily do that you know, the rest of the time. It is pretty funny, and it's cool to kind of see the the different fish interact with the camera. Like the redfish are pretty curious and kind of come up, and the <laughs> trout and black drum, they kind of like get near it and see it and, and kind of want to get away from it. Like the redfish are a little more spunky and like kind of courageous, if you will. But um, That's awesome. <laughs> so when did, when did this jigging turn into the popping? When did you realize that you could go throw topwaters? Because I know everyone, whether you're inshore or offshore fishermen, uh, eat on the surface is about as exciting as it gets. When did that become, you know, part of the part of the routine so pretty quickly um the the guys that came to catch the jacks um they also wanted to go catch jacks on the on the reefs inshore so or near shore um and so catching them on poppers in there was pretty easy um 
I could never really get them to rise um, deeper than 150. I could never get them to rise up and eat. Um, every once in a while in 165, 170, I could get them to come up. Um, but they would never stay up. They, they just yeah. never would do that. Um, so um, near shore stuff, you know, it was pretty much right away. And <clears throat> so – um, and near shore for yeah. you is different than maybe what I would call near shore. So what is your range near shore that you're talking? Near shore for me is, uh, say, 20 to 45 miles. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, that's my, if I'm like, oh, we're going offshore today, I'm taking my bay boat, it's like 15 miles. <laughs> right, right. And it, when that's smart because it's a bay boat. So, um, 100%. That's, that's, that's smart. Yeah, so um, popping, popping really was, you know, I had caught being on the being from the other banks. I had caught yellowfins on poppers. Um, there was there was years, especially during the the late part of the spring, when the yellowfins would get all stacked up and they just you'd see them airing out, but they would not eat a trolled uh, trolled lure. Um, and we would make uh, these really ugly poppers out of like broom handles and stuff. Um, and the mates would all walk to the front with a spinning rod. And back then it was you know, basically a Cobio spinning rod, like, you know, a 30 pound spinning rod. Right. Right. And we, and, yeah, and we would throw it off the front when we'd see them air and out and we would skip the thing back where we weren't really popping. We were just kind of skipping it back and we would get bites like that and welcome back and let the clients, you know, land them. But, um, it never really was like, um, a thing. It was just kind of like, okay, we've been trolling for four hours. Our clients are watching tunas for four hours. We haven't had a bite. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and get my tip anyway I can. So I'm walking to the bow with a, you know, makeshift popper thing. Um, <laughs> and it, I mean, and that's, that's literally what it was. Um, so popping really became a thing for me. Um, well, okay. I guess this is a twofold answer. So again, we were catching, uh, near shore, um, say 130 foot and less, uh, we were catching, uh, jacks and barracudas and that kind of stuff, uh, jack cravals on poppers, no problem. Um, they, and the, the Japanese guys brought all that stuff too. Um, and typically that's a really big popper. You know, uh, they have this big, um, uh, uh, how do I describe a jack? Jacks are like, uh, I don't even know how to describe them. They're, they're, they're this thing that if you threw a perfect small popper out there and work it perfectly, they would go, eh. you can take the, a giant <laughs> popper and work it horribly. And they're just like, yes. That's and, awesome. <laughs> and you know, it, right. So, um, and, and I will say this about Japanese anglers. This is probably counterintuitive to what people think. Cause they're, they're amazing. They're amazing people. They make amazing tackle. But as far as like individual fishing skill, um, I would rate them at like a B, B minus. Yeah. Um, they're not intuitive. They're, they, they design lures to do certain things and then they change lures until they find out what works versus changing like the cadence or right, changing right. the speed. You know what I mean? That's, they, they're worried about color. They're worried about size. They're worried about shape. They're worried about, and so they would change lures constantly. Um, but the the other thing that we almost catch, more mathematical, like there's a there's a solution an algorithm that's going to work for this instead exactly. of gotcha gotcha gotcha. They they were looking for a specific tool to work a specific way. That's exactly the way they did it. It's yeah. very mathematical, and and it, I, I know I know I'm sure you're the same way. 
if I go somewhere and I'm throwing something in their fishing area, I can figure out, typically I can figure out how to change my way of doing it to eat that lure versus change lures a hundred times. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Those are so, always my first options is like, all right, how can I change cadence, retrieve speed? And then I'll start digging into the box if I, if I can't make it work. Right. And there may be a day when they're doing something that you have to change it up. But so the other thing we would catch a lot on poppers were bluefin tunas. Um, and we call bluefin tunas primarily near shore again. Um, and we caught those off of Morgan Inlet. We caught those off of Moorhead and I've caught some off the shoals down here. Um, but those fish are typically in, in, except for the organilla fish, those fish were shallower water and, um, blue fins are kind of like garbage trucks. You know, if, if there's something in the way, they go ahead and eat it and they move on They're They don't care. I've, I've cleaned them with every animal, um, in the ocean, in their bellies. They, they yeah. just don't care. Um, so we were catching those, but that, you know, again, you could use a big lure and make it splash any direction fast flow. Didn't matter that they, they would eat it. Yeah. Um, that wasn't the case offshore. I wasn't getting black fins to eat it like that. And I wasn't getting uh, yellow fins to eat it like that. And, and you can catch a, a mahi on a popper, um, simply for the, by taking it away like a cat and mouse game. So, um, and, and that's part of my stick when I, when I start talking to people while we're fishing that day is, um, if you're, if you're fishing for tunas, you fish it a real slow way. And I'll, I'll explain that real quick, but basically if you're, if you see a mahi, you need to, in your mind, take it away from the mahi, play him like yeah. a cat. You know, if you've ever played with a cat in somebody's house, which I hate cats, but, um, <laughs> if you've ever played with a everyone's cat, at least play with one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you're, if you're all slow and try to pet them like a dog, they're like, whatever. Right. If, right. if you take something and you're flicking it around and acting all, you know, twitchy with it, they love that. Right. Right. Um, that, that, that's a mahi. You throw a popper out, you work it as fast as possible. If he doesn't get it before it gets to the boat, you literally take it out of the water and fire it away from the boat as far as you can and start splashing it again and let them run out there and eat it. Um, because as soon as you stop the, the, the crazy action, they're like, eh, whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. if I could, if I can eat it when I want to, I'll eat it when I want to, not now. And if, if it's the other way around where they have to either eat it right now as a blind to eat or, you know, or wait, then they're going to eat it right then. For and, sure. and, and so the tunas are totally different than that. So, um, in, uh, 2010, I had a group from, uh, New Zealand come. They were my first group of New Zealanders. Um, and the word had kind of gotten out. So this is, like I said, this is out of 200 days a year offshore. I'm 130 days, 140 days with nothing but jig and pop guys. Um, you know, no ballyhoos, no, not, no trolling, no riggers on the boat. I mean, it is, it's pure paradise. Yeah. Um, so we're offshore and, um, we're, they're jigging jacks, but they're catching a lot of tunas. And, um, towards the end of the day, every day, they would take their poppers and throw poppers or stick baits and catch a few tunas because they like to bring tunas home to eat, um, in the afternoons. And so I was, I was trying to, like talk them through how to catch a tuna and they were like, no, no, watch. And they would throw the poppers out, switch it or pop it one good time and let it sit there. And just, it was excruciatingly long in between pops. And I'm like, guys, you need to let them know it's here. And they go, just, just relax. And sure enough, they start crushing them. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, what is my whole, my whole philosophy is like upside down. And come to find out, 
opportunities will eat something jumping and splashing if it jumps and splashes at the same spot for a long enough period of time. But if it's moving, they, they don't necessarily want to run you know, or, or swim 150, 200 feet away to try and eat something that's moving already, right? Yeah, yeah. But if they can see the silhouette of it and they, you can get their attention by making that noise, that little pop, or on a popper, it's a pop. On a stick bait, it's more of like a like a whereas it's just kind of splash in the water. Yeah, um, they eat it when it's totally still. They hardly ever eat it when you're actually moving it. Um, That's crazy. so that it, well, and it changed my whole game. So my my whole my like again, I, I need a hobby. <laughs> I, I, I dream of this stuff at night. Um, I woke up last night and made some sketches. Uh, about something I'm working on now. It, it, anyway, awesome. so so here's the thing. If you've ever gone offshore and seen yellow fins or black fins airing out on a normal basis and you have not been able to get them on the troll, the, what they're doing is they're using that eyesight to, to um, and they're using their audible nerve, their, their lateral line, um, and just their ear bone to hear and watch. And what they're listening for is that splash of a flying fish landing or a squid. Um, sometimes it's hard to watch, but a lot of times squid will come up and they'll make these little spit marks. Um, and we have mackerels that, that jump straight up and straight back down. These little, um, little like Boston mackerel looking things. Uh-huh. Um, and they're listening for that noise at the surface. And then they're using their eyes to key in on it. And if it stays there long enough, they can zip up there and eat it while it's sitting still. Wow. Um, and, and so think about a flying fish. When it lands, a flying fish takes off. It's, you know, it's beautiful. It's graceful in the air. It's like Kermit trying to land a plane when it comes down. You know, great pilot, horrible land. Right, right. So they, they come splashing down, and they make this big splash. They fold their wings in. They take those giant eyes. And they look around, and they go, okay, what saw me? And do I need to jump again and get out of the way? Um, cause they don't make any more noise once they land. Right. Um, and so, um, um, I, I quickly realized that when I can see them, then I need to be able to stop the boat, get everybody throwing a popper, pop, let it sit, pop, let it sit, pop, let it sit. And the longer you can let it sit between pops, the longer you can make one cast last, the better off you are. Um, that worked pretty good. I really only did it when I could see them. I, I soon realized that when I troll over a school of tunas and I'm marking them 150 feet down or 120 feet down, they're coming that distance to eat my troll stuff. Um, why would they not come that deep or, you know, from that deep to eat a popper when I'm sitting there longer? Um, so my evolution went from just being able to see them and throw at them to now I can mark them. We can jig them and we can pop them. And then you know, quickly realizing that a popper fish is almost always bigger than a jig fish. Um, jig fish can be any size. I've caught really big ones uh, on jig, but on a popper bite, the, it, it really um, it, it narrows the size range. Those little itty bitty fish don't eat that popper. That's cool. um, and, and and so all of my really big, my biggest black fins, including the state record, have all come on poppers. Um, and and it was it was that kind of evolution of okay, I need to pop and let it sit for a tuna. If I see a mahi, I need to pop it fast. Um, that just opened up another weapon in the arsenal. Um, more of a rifle too, but but kind of a rifle with a with a longer arm. You know what I mean? For um, sure. Because that 
because now I'm drifting over stuff that I'm marking, whereas we would be drifting or jigging, but now I can have five guys or whatever thrown in different directions. And now we're covering a big old swath of water. Um, That's awesome. And the more, you, yeah, the more you pop, the more they come to the noise, the more it just, it all creates on its own. Um, and I'll tell you this story real quick, just because it, it, I thought it was interesting. And, and some of the best fishermen in the, in our area were out there that day. Um, when, so I have a client who broke the state record black fin tuna, um, back in 2010, um, or 11. Anyway, um, we were offshore. We had marked the tunas. We had marked jacks. It was one of those slick, calm days, bluebird skies. Um, and, um, and, uh, there was, uh, seven or eight of us out there fishing. I think there was eight of us all together. At least that's the way they tell the story. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, so. So we're all fishing, we're all trolling in the morning. There was some mahis and stuff caught, but we really didn't catch anything jigging and popping um, at all except for jacks during the day. And I had marked this school of tunas over and over again. I knew there were tunas. And uh, at 1 o'clock, I did not have a fish in the boat. Um, we had released some jacks. And at one, like one twenty, one thirty, something like that, the entire ocean erupted with black fins jumping everywhere. And I mean, 360 awesome. as far as you could see, right? I mean, just unbelievable. And what had happened was, um, that sounds like the beginning of a movie. Um, <laughs> what, what had happened was, um, <laughs> so as the day went along, this push of water came in that was full of flying fish. Okay. And so as there was no real bait source in the morning, in the afternoon, when the, all those flyers came across the rock where those tunas were, they came up out of the woodwork and went to town. Um, ah, that is, I got to, I mean, just imagine that's got to be one of the coolest things ever to see. It, it was incredible. And here's, so I had, I had four guys on the boat that had never popped or jigged. And I had one friend of mine who, who had jigged and popped quite a bit with me. Um, and, um, I did not have a fish at one o'clock at one thirty. They started biting. I quit at four cause I was out of space in the boat. Um, <laughs> 53 blackfin, including the new state record, 40 pounds, 11 ounces. Most of the fish were 25 to 35 pounds. And if you know blackfins, a uh, 35 pounder is just insanely big. Huge, yeah. Yeah. Um, and did not have a fish, like I said, at 1 o'clock. And of the other boats that were there around us trolling, none of them caught a single tuna. Wow. That is crazy. That is, and that's the difference between a fish using its senses acutely to kill one one bait fish. They were looking for nothing but flyers. They would come up. They would see or hear a flying fish take off. They were listening for the splash. When they hear the splash, they would run towards the splash, find the silhouette, and they would either – they were doing two things. When we'd see them in the air, they were either eating a flying fish that had just landed, like they would literally track it and chase it up and eat it as it was landing – or they were eating them right before they could actually take off. So they were sitting still and you'd see them like start to take off and they would just get blasted. Mm, that um, is crazy. And, and I noticed really quickly that when, as I'd pull up to make a drift, um, cause we're drifting this whole time. So I'd pull up to make a drift. Um, we would, uh, we wouldn't get a, a bite the first you know cast or so because the, the wake and the, the noise off the boat had to, dis- had to go away before they could hear the poppers. Um, and so it was, it was interesting. Like, as I started realizing that I was like, okay, I want to be up here another couple hundred yards. 
I would run for a while, and then I would stop and idle in and then turn the boat and let them fish, and we'd start getting bites right away again. Um, but it was it's, this fishery we have, like I say, we are so blessed to have all these different species, but um, to be able to include all these different tactics now, um, it makes my it makes my existence in the Gulf Stream fun again, right? So, right, right. You know, not just rigging baits and trolling, and it's same old, same old, same old. Um, it's got to be. You know, I've never caught, I've never caught a tarpon on a fly, um, but I would imagine it's like, you know, you, you can catch a tarpon a million ways on bait or a million times on bait, and then get one fly bite, and you're like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it's, it, exactly. And I think what's so cool about what you found is just a large amount of diversity in the way to target fish, which just as a guide or someone who does something day in and day out, it keeps it interesting for you. Uh, you know, yeah, it, and that's, that's what I, that's kind of how I am in shore is, I, you know, there's a lot of guys that just bait fish or just fly fish or just, you know, throw spin rods like tackle. But I, I like to do a good mixture of all. Not only does it help me, you know, book more trips cause I'm a little more open to, you know, a, a, a larger, pool of clients but it, it it keeps it interesting you know one day i'm going to go yeah. catch v reds on bait and then the next day we're going to go you know pull an edge and sight fish redfish that are tailing in the grass and it just keeps it it keeps it interesting you know it keeps it yeah. uh and the light tackle side of things like what you're doing is it's, there's just always those questions you have in your head of like will this work i wonder what this will do like is this the key that i need to open up this you know whole new world and, and that's what keeps me going mm-hmm. uh and new areas too. I mean, especially with with coastal North Carolina, there's a lot of stuff that's that is pretty untouched when it comes to you know how I fish and shore. And and I would say the same for for yourself. Mm-hmm. Probably areas where you're like, I wonder what this would look like. No one's done this here. I need to go figure that mm-hmm. out. And that's what drives me, man. I wanna I wanna learn and figure out new stuff, new areas that people haven't haven't messed with. And it's kind of uh it kind of intriguing. I'm just now getting into like the soft plastic realm, which I think is going to be a whole new can of worms offshore. Yeah. I mean, so it's exciting. And plus we're also using tackle, all different size tackles. So like we use jig rods from 20 pound test up to one thirty, and and we use popping rods um, from like say 50 class uh, up to um, well, one thirty class, you know, again, I'm, I'm catching everything all the way from, like my largest fish on a popper is a was a 121 inch bluefin weighed just under 850. Um, so I mean, you know, sky's the limit as far as like the ability of the tackle, um, and then it puts a lot of it on the angler, um, and the you know the 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 way these things are designed and the way they perform, being you know, like parabolic jigging rods versus just you know standard spinning rods, um, and then now this uh, everybody's talking about slow pitch we've been doing variations of slow pitch for a long time now. Um, but now the tackle is caught up where we're using like low profile, basically like a oversized bass reel. Wow. Um, so that, that's a blast. I mean, um, and then it, now that I'm incorporating, uh, soft plastic stuff, um, we're doing more really, really soft, light, delicate presentations. Um, and, and so, you know, we go offshore. We we really have an intent. Like, we want to go catch tuners on poppers. But if they're not doing it that day or, you know, something's messed up and they, they just won't come to the service, we have all these other things to go do. So having a bad day is really, you know, it's it, it taking those bad days kind of out of the equation. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe the offshore world of fishing has been kind of behind what you 
not behind, but not tapped into like the inshore world. And granted, there's a lot more people that can inshore fish every day than people that can offshore fish every day. Mm-hmm. But as far as like pushing the what you can do and how you can catch these fish, it seems like most people just kind of go out and troll. But there's this whole other world of of stuff to be done that that is, I would say, not accessed by most people that are running You're out there. One hundred percent correct. This is the sky's the limit, and we have, I'm literally just scratching what the possibilities are. I mean, think about this. This stuff from, from Japan only came here because the yin was strong and they could travel cheap. Um, but half of that stuff that they're doing now, they've been doing for 20 years, we haven't seen yet. I right. mean, that's the realistic, you know, when I go to like trade shows and see the Japanese trade shows, I'm looking at stuff that I don't even understand how they're starting to use it, whether, you know, and what they're fishing for. And same thing with like um, Australia is, is a little bit better, but New Zealand is like this lost colony. They're 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 doing stuff that, I mean, it, it's insane what they're doing now. That we have we won't have any idea for the next five or six years the stuff that they've been doing for five years. Yeah. Um. So it's exciting, and um, you know, boat technology's come a long ways. The like you were talking about, the electronics have come a long ways. Um, and and. I think fishermen have come a long ways in understanding that um, I, I, as a golf stream fisherman, basically was was left in this world of the guy who showed up and threw the most dead things on the dock one, right? Right. Um, and the inshore guys kind of split, you know, like you were talking about, there's there's guys that just go bait fishing and just, you know, do that, you know, Spanish mackerel meat fish type of thing. And that's great. And the tourists that want to do that, that's great. But it seems to me that the inshore guys have figured out how to do this experience-based fishing versus meat fish-based fishing. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, you're never going to pay me a charter rate and go offshore and expect to, you know, evaluate cash for, you know, poundage of fish on the dock. Right, right. It's, you know, it's not going to, you know, I can go to my channel and beat that every single day. Yeah. But, but you can't get the experience of catching something inshore or offshore um, you know, the, the experience is way more value than the fish being dead. So we're releasing a ton of fish now. Um, and we're fishing for things like these African pompadours we catch in the wintertime. We catch them really, you know, really, really good in the wintertime. They're kind of stacked up. Um, they're big and in the summertime they spread out. So they're not as, they're not as, uh, I, I say what I'm doing in the wintertime should be illegal. And if enough people knew about it, it would be. Because when I find a school, this is not a lie. I, when I find a school of African pompano, and they're they're picky. They they sometimes they want a long jig, sometimes they want a short jig, sometimes they want a bucktail, sometimes they want a, a soft plastic squid, and sometimes they want it fast, sometimes they want it slow. It, but once you once you tap into that school's want, I can catch them all. Wow. Like and that's the that's the, the the horrible part of that is. And before I kind of changed my mindset, and I've, luckily I did it a long time ago, but you know, mindset was, Hey, if I can bring 50 of these home, I'm going to right now. It's a boat limit of 18. And that's if I have six people on board. Right. You know what I mean? You know, it's sure. three African pompano is 25 to 45 pounds is enough for birth. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. It's, and it's, we're going to uh, release them. And I think that's just a cool, I think inshore and offshore that, and maybe offshore is a little further behind. I don't really know because I'm not, I'm not in that world, but I feel like more people are realizing like, oh, just because it comes over the gunnel doesn't mean it, it, you know, it has to go in the cooler. So, and, and, and 
especially for people, you know, you spend a lot of money to go offshore, whether you're booking a charter or going yourself and it's nice to have mm-hmm. stuff to throw in the freezer to be able to eat. It's a, maybe a little easier for me to convince someone to let a redfish some way than maybe you, uh, you for a, you know, African pomino or, or a tuna or something. But I mean, you, you'd probably have to really convince me to let a tuna go some way too. But, <laughs> but, um, well, the great thing about it is when you're jigging, like if, you, like if I catch 25 or 30 tunas, I mean, we keep the first 15 or 20, we're good. Yeah, for right? sure. For sure. Most, okay. th- most that's, definitely. That's, that's the game. That's that's really what we're doing now. And and, that, and that's – so luckily, the, the I think as the sport evolves, it will evolve into guys doing it for sport first, some to eat, but they'll, they'll be stewards of the, of, you know, of the fish and let them go. And um, I, I think that's where we're headed. I, I really feel like the inshore guys kind of paved the way um, to that being a real – you know, real thing versus, I mean, like I say, on the Outer Banks, I, I fished many, many days where we, the fleet goes offshore and the first the first boat to their limit, their 18 fish boat limit of yellowfins, the first one boat back to the dock won. Right. Like that was, you know, and, and now it's, we, we fished a full day and if we've caught a bunch of different things, um, a bunch of different ways, everybody's happy versus, you know, throwing meat on the dock. And, um, the end goal is a good of, experience, a great it's all, experience in the outdoors yeah. is what, what, you know, we're selling now and what, what we're seeing the value of. And I think with getting into all these different techie styles of fishing and baits and all this Japanese style, you know, even in the bass world, look at the bass world, all these new, like a lot yeah. of the guys that are winning these big tournaments are fishing Japanese baits. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're ahead of us as far as, uh, you know, technology, technology goes. Yeah, yeah for mm-hmm. sure. And so I, I think the more you can geek out about how you're catching them and, and the style of how you're fishing and the, you know, maybe the less you're drawn to the, the killing of the fish and eating of the fish, mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it at all. I'm all for killing fish, and fish, but you know, there's, <laughs> there's so much more to it at that point than just sitting there until a rod goes off. You know, you're, you're so much That's more right. invested in those fish, uh, before, beforehand, you know, so same thing with like, if I throw a Carolina rig and a finger mullet on the bank, and catch a fish, right. you know, that fish means less to me mentally. I have less memory of that fish and, and, and I'm not going home like, man, you should have seen that rod go down. Like, it, but, <laughs> but when it's like, you know, we're pulling down the bank and a red fish is belly crawling and you see him pop a couple of shrimp and you drop a fly in there and he runs over and eats it. Like that fish I have a relationship with, you know what I mean? That's right. It, it's, Absolutely. It's, it's more intimate if you will. If you're the hundred, you nailed it. That's, that's the most poetic way I've ever heard it said. <laughs> it just kind of came. You have time. You, <laughs> you share time with that fish when it happens like that. For sure. Exactly for sure. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The more in tune you're, you're more in tune with it. It's it's fun. So, well, take me real quick before we wrap this up through the seasons here. If someone wants to come fish with you. What are the seasons? What are you doing? Uh, when it, yep. and and then kind of talk about what your favorite take is on, on a day of fishing here in North Carolina. Gotcha. Well, so luckily, like I say, we have four seasons. We have basically every three months, everything changes. So the winter season for me is, uh, I'm going to call it winter, basically is January, February, early March, mid-March. Um, that is African pompanos, black pintunas, um, wahoos, um, and then some, some bottom fish jigging, especially like uh, trigger fish. We catch a lot of triggers jigging, beeliners, uh, yeah. uh, things like that. So th- that's the winter game. Really, it's, it's black fins and, and pompanos being the, the highliners. Um, and then we transfer into spring and with spring, uh, which is late March, call it April, May, June. That's when we're going to start seeing our pelagic pushes between sails, white, blue marlin. Um, the African pompanos will stay till about mid April and then they go inshore and divert and, and spread out. Um, we do catch some cobias in the early spring on the break, uh, jigging. Um, they're kind of a random catch. 
Um, we start seeing yellowfin tuna show up. They could show up last year. They didn't show up till the end of June and stayed all the way through the end of August. Okay. Um, but um, typically it's blackfin, yellowfins, wahoos, uh, and mahi show up mid, mid to late April. Um, and then May 1st, we add the bottom fishing degree in there because now we can start keeping uh, groupers and, and uh, some of your other snappers. Um, and then once it gets warm towards the end of June, that July, August, early September time frame, the water off gets in the mid 80s. Um, and then it's really, it's, um, it's all kinds of different bottom fish. And, and that's when we also start catching our um, traveling bottom fish like mutton snappers, yellowtail snappers, mangrove snappers. Um, and we catch those on light tackle jigging stuff um, on the edge of the break. So 150 to 400 foot, um, which is kind of something that we just don't normally catch on bait. Yeah. Um, and so that, that fishery is awesome. Um, and then uh, come the fall, late September, all the way through Christmas, um, we get uh, blackfins coming back down south, and and that changes depending on how quickly we get northeast fronts. They don't necessarily go on water temperature anymore. They they go by the fronts. So if we get a bunch of fronts coming from the northeast that that like attack Virginia Beach and then follow all the way to us, fish will migrate with that wind, kind of like a mullet does in the surf. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the surf temperature gets hotter or colder necessarily. If it, if it blows northeast, they just assume they just automatically swim south right um so it's, it's black fins wahoos um start to bite again we have those year round here um but they, they get more aggressive in the fall we have the greatest sailfish bite in the entire universe here um in november um late october november and december and sometimes like it lasts all the way into january mid-january but um late november and december um if you're trolling for wahoos any given day, you could expect uh, five to twelve or more shots at a sailfish per day. Um, wow! And we, yeah, I mean, it's just that good. And they're all kind of in that same body of water. They're not inshore anymore, and they're not in the deep. They're kind of all right there, where again, where all that life is. They're all right there on that break. Um, and so you could definitely catch. We catch them on on uh, poppers and, and stick baits. Um, I won't, we can't really target them because you're not covering any water doing that, but, um, we definitely catch them and we catch them trolling. Um, and then the pompanos, as the water cools off, the Africans show back up offshore, um, around Thanksgiving and spend the rest of the winter there. Um, and, and one other thing that I, we're not talking necessarily light tackle, but we have an, it's a ridiculously good swordfish, uh, fishery oh, yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, last year was my first year doing it um, on charters. I ran 15 trips. Uh, we harvested 29 fish. We tagged six others, and I can't tell you how many we lost. Um, and and it's straight off. It's uh, 1,650 foot for me was my number, and and uh, that is a year round fishery also. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think it, when you ask about what my favorite is, I'm a tuna fishing guy. I just love catching a tuna fish on a any way I can, but yeah. um, that's my number one thing. But I think the reason that I love going offshore still to this day, and it never gets old and boring, is that we we do have all four seasons, um, so you don't get into a rut. Which right, is nice. it's just constantly changing, and just so yeah. many species. Yeah, guy, we didn't even talk about the near shore stuff. Like, I mean, when you talk about going to the break, there's like certain things that I'm expecting to catch, and it's like a fifty or sixty species like normal list. 
once you get inshore, especially in, in the mid, mid late spring to, to late fall, that stuff in there is crazy. Like, I mean, we just, the, the number of things you can jig and pop inshore that nobody does is untapped. And give us a list of, of a few. I'm curious of what, what, what fish you are talking about for the, for the near shore. So near shore stuff, like, especially if you go towards the tower, I have seen multiple permit days out there where you could definitely get into permits. Um, uh, Jack Revile, um, all your other normal jacks, uh, Sierra mackerels, Spanish mackerels. I, so last year I had, I think I had 11 or 12 Spanish mackerels over 10 pounds. Golly, that's um, awesome. I mean, these things are like, you know, as big as they get kind of, you know, oh, yeah. um, you think it's a Giant, small king mackerel when you when you hook into it? That, yeah, and that's what we were fishing for. You know, we weren't really targeting them necessarily. And, and then, and then all of your bottle species, all of your grunts and sea bass and pinkies and jolt heads and white bone porgies and uh, the, the list the list is silly once you actually start fishing. Like I, I, I remember running a trip last year for the Wilmington men's crew men's group, and it was like the week before grouper season started. So it was kind of, you know, late spring, not really summer yet. And I was like, guys, we can't keep any groupers, but do you want to go bottom fishing? And they're like, yes. So we stayed in like 90 to, I think we got to 102 foot or something is the deepest. And we had like 17 species of fish and everybody took home like, I don't know, like a hundred pounds of clean meat. Um, and it was nuts. It was all jigging little stuff um and living rubber style stuff i mean there's, there's a ton of other techniques that are light tackle now that we we just you can't do it all in one show but right it's it's insane what you're going to catch and every drop is different so like you catch a trigger fish and then you catch an american red snapper and then you catch a red grouper and then you catch a scan and and then you catch a white grunt and you're like you know <laughs> you know big 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 red drum like in the winter time or in the fall at the 30 30 um jigging gag groupers and catching 45 inch red group or red drum yeah mixed right in on the wreck you know just the place is nuts there's so many things to catch here yeah that's we're in such a middle ground you know where we get the the northern push of fish and we get the mm-hmm. southern push of fish and it's just a really cool diverse area both inshore and yep. nearshore so right maybe, well i, I think the saying? biologist told me i think the biologist told me that we're the we're the northern we're the northernmost and the southernmost spot for every Pelagically migrated fish. Wow. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. That is super cool. And, and, and birds. And birds. Yeah, we have a huge diversity of birds. I mean, some summers, and honestly, the past two summers, I haven't seen many, but I would say three summers ago, down in the lower Cape Fear, there was tons of roseate spoonbills and, and mm. just really, really cool to see. And we're the very northern reach of the, you know, where those birds go. And, right. Uh, just just kind of cool to be able to see the different fish and the different birds seasonally. But, man, what a cool podcast. I'm, like, so intrigued. It's just – it's not my world, and it's something I want to – I can't wait to get out there with you one day and, and do some of this this style of fishing. I've been offshore and, and done a lot of trolling and uh, and whatnot, but but really what you do is so cool and intriguing to me. And, uh, well, I can't wait to see what you do with a fly that I'm not doing because the fly fishing aspect, I, I think there are days when that would work better than traditional lures. And I can't wait to get you offshore just so you can teach me how to do some of these, you know, really intimate things. I, I just think it's going to be, 
there's a whole lot more to learn. Let's put it that way. Yeah, for sure. I think so as well. Um, and man, it is cool. I mean, talk about like ultimate finesse, not that flies always has to be finesse, but you really can get a really simple, delicate presentation with the fly mm-hmm. rod, which is really cool. So we'll, uh, hopefully some to come, maybe we'll get out there and do some film and catch. Some, I, I, you were saying one time something about maybe being able to catch an African pompadour on a fly rod. And I think that would be awesome i think so yep. <laughs> that yep. would be super cool but man i'm gonna link all of your stuff in the show notes but before we hop off here awesome. tell people how they can get up with you how they can reach you if they want to book a trip sure it's a living waters guide service um the website is living waters guide nc.com um, my cell phone 910-620-7709 and um i take texts better than i take calls just because of my schedule um, one of the reasons that you and me hadn't met earlier in our careers because <laughs> I leave a little earlier than you and I get home a little later than you. Right. Um, so we, we just don't cross paths real well. But yeah, shoot me a text and uh, if I can help anybody you know who's interested in getting into this stuff, um, you know, a lot of this was uh, I was just very very blessed to be part of it. So I don't hold back. If uh, if you want to know something, I'm happy to to help you get in, involved in this fishery. Yeah, that's super cool, man. Well, thank you so much, Rick. Uh, super stoked to get this podcast out. And and as always, uh, guys, thanks for listening. Rick, I'll see you at church probably next. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. Have a good one, buddy. All right, guys. Thanks. Bye. If you're anything like me, you like a clean boat. That's why I've chosen to partner with Carolina First Mate out of South Carolina. Carolina First Mate is a family-owned business that provides environmentally friendly boat cleaning alternatives. My two favorite products are their hole cleaner that doesn't harm your trailer and their boat wash. Be sure to use code EC15 for 15% off your online purchase. If you're interested in checking out all their products, you can find a link to their website in the podcast show notes.